So there seems to be quite a big mismatch there, doesn't there, between the number of people who say they are Christian and then the number of people who do something that you might think is standard for a Christian and go to church. I think it's probably also safe to say that there's a big mismatch between the number of people that would say they're Christian but consistently try to live out Christian morality as well. And James speaks into this. We, I guess we, we could ask the, the question, what, what is genuine faith then? How, how do we know if someone's truly a Christian when there's, there's such a mismatch between what people say and what people do? And James speaks into this, but his primary purpose isn't actually so that we can sort of look around at the rest of the UK and go, tut, tut. I think it's actually so that we look at our hearts and ask serious questions of ourselves. So he's, he's already been speaking in his letter about true religion, what that is, what that looks like. He said at the end of chapter 1, um, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So he's already been talking about what true religion is, and now he presses into that. He, he begins to explain why it is necessary for religion to be shown in works, the things we do. It can't just be a matter of empty words. Now, why, why does he go there? Um, clearly, there was a, a problem among his readers. Otherwise, I guess he wouldn't have bothered. Maybe it was... Um, People had misunderstood the gospel. Maybe there was a complacency about the extent to which following Jesus meant you had to actually repent and be more like Jesus. Maybe people sort of got that, but you know, sacrifice is hard. Picking up your cross and following Jesus is hard. And maybe people thought, you know, if if I if I sort of give ten percent over my of my life over to following Jesus and keep the rest for myself, that'll be okay. Clearly, there was some kind of problem. If you're familiar with any of Paul's teaching, particularly Galatians or Romans, you may think that James is contradicting things that Paul says in those letters when he talks about we're saved by faith alone and not by works of the law. I'm not sure James had read those letters. I'm not sure those letters were even in existence when James wrote because James was most likely writing in the early or mid-40s AD. Um, Paul's letters to uh, Galatia and Romans were probably after 50 AD, after a big council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, when they all got together to kind of make sure they were clear on what the gospel was. James had probably met Paul once for a couple of days. He probably wasn't particularly familiar with Paul's teaching. And it's really unlikely that he was writing against Paul. See, I think he is just concerned about empty profession among his own hearers. People, like he says in, um, in verse 1, someone who claims to have faith but has no deeds. 
Now, he, he's clear that faith is really important for salvation. We need to have faith in Jesus if we're going to be saved from God's judgment, if we're going to live forever with him. He's not denying that. It's implicit in verse 14 when he says, can such faith save them, that faith is necessary to salvation? He's, and yet, he is asking a really important question. What good is it? What value is there in a faith that doesn't show itself in good, good deeds? The, the, the kind of things he's been talking about already. Love and concern for the poor and vulnerable, sort of restraining our tongues from all of the rubbish and filth and slander that can often slip out. He gives an example, doesn't he? Verse um, 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And that is a really important question. What good is it? To be honest, that, that needy brother or sister might as well have gone and asked a dead corpse for all the well wishes of the unnamed person in verse 15 has done them. That person may have expressed compassion, but it hasn't led to any good. It hasn't helped the needy person. They would have got just as far by asking a corpse. And so James says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. In short, it's not true faith if it doesn't bear some kind of fruit in love, in good deeds, in restrained words. Now, why is that? And I, I think James is trying to show us in verses 18 and 19 that true faith and, and, and loving deeds cannot be separated. Um, they you can't pull them apart. One without the other is hopeless, meaningless. Um, verse 18 is kind of slightly hard to get your head around. What, what is he actually arguing there? Um, is he sort of got this imaginary opponent who's actually sort of almost sounds like he's backing himself up rather than arguing against James? I think what he is trying to say in verse 18, this imaginary opponent is saying, you can either have faith or you can have deeds. Either is equally good on its own without the other. Either is of equal value in saving you, making you right with God. So to, to, to give an example, the, the pious person who goes to church on a Sunday, but there's nothing obviously Christian about their life the rest of the week. But yeah, they, they can recite the Apostles' Creed, they can say the Lord's Prayer. That person and the sworn atheist who you know, never darkened the door of a church in their life but helps at the local homeless shelter every week, those two people are equally saved. That's probably what this opponent is trying to say in verse 18. You can have faith or you can have deeds. Either's fine on its own. But James says no. True faith and love for God are necessary to salvation. We can't have we, we can't be saved unless we believe in Jesus, the Savior. That's, as we've already said, that's implicit 
what, in what James says in verse uh, 14, faith is necessary. Um, it's abundantly clear in the rest of the Bible. Uh, John 14, um, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me, uh, to the Father, except through me, Jesus says. Um, faith is necessary, but true faith shows itself in a right response to the things believed. Um, these are necessary evidence of faith, if you like. Take, for example, um, the, the basic, essential Jewish and Christian belief that God is one. This is what James is referring to in um, verse, where is it? Verse 19. Um, it's, it's Deuteronomy 6, the Old Testament, most famous bit. Jewish people will have it above their door. Um, Jesus quotes it as the most important commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you claim to believe that, doesn't that have some, some implications, some necessary outworkings in your life? If, if God really is one, if there is only one God who has created the entire world, who has created you and me, to whom we owe everything, doesn't he deserve a response from us in our lives? Shouldn't he deserve some thanks? Doesn't he perhaps deserve our obedience? There are necessary implications to what we believe. You can't say God is one as if it's true and then think that has no consequence on your life. So James gives the example, even the demons respond to the belief that God is one. The, the demons believe that God is one. They know that. They know that better than a lot of human beings know that. And they even respond by shuddering. Uh, probably partly because they're terrified of the judgment they're finally going to face when Jesus comes back, and probably because the, the whole of their rebellion is based on the fact they are jealous of God and his power and his authority. They want it for themselves, and they really hate and resent the fact that actually God's the only one who's truly powerful and authoritative. And when they think of him, they shudder with indignation as well as fear, I expect, but the point is they respond. Their faith shows itself in an action, as it were. But that is not enough to save them. The demons will not be in heaven. And that's because they haven't responded in the right way. If they truly acknowledged who God is as the one uncreated creator who made everything good before we messed it up by sin, who is wholly loving and worthy of our love, they probably wouldn't just respond with shuddering, would they? they? They might actually turn around and repent and start to obey God too. And that is the, the kind of the necessary outworking of a true faith in who God is. It's not just knowing it in your head, it's responding in the right way. Now, James has, in some ways, he's already made his point. He's, we ought to be persuaded by what he said by the end of verse 19, that biblical truth has important implications. We, those need to be reflected in our lives. 
the, the, the truth we say we believe ought to bear fruit. It ought to be evidenced in the way we act. And so I want to just, before we move on to where he goes next, because apparently the evidence he gives from verse 20 onwards is only for foolish people who really aren't convinced by what he's already said. I just want to stop first and reflect a bit on the implications for us. Um, I guess what James wants us to ask is to look at ourselves and ask, does my life bear evidence of a true, a lively, saving faith? Are my words empty words on a Sunday morning? Or is there some way, at least some small way, in my life that it shows I believe those words? That it's evident that God is at work in me? It's clearly possible to kid ourselves, otherwise James wouldn't be writing this section. It's clearly possible to say all the right things and think you're safe without it actually having changed you. So we need to ask the question, for example, going on the last couple of weeks, is there any evidence at all of love and mercy towards the poor in my life? Is my response ever more than warm words? Is there evidence I have believed a key part of the gospel, in other words, that Jesus became poor for my sake to save me, to make me rich? And am I therefore willing to become poorer for the sake of loving others? Now we need to be careful here. James isn't expecting perfection. Um, in chapter 3, verse 2, just the very next bit, he goes on to say, we all stumble in many ways. He includes himself in that. James stumbles in many ways. He's not expecting perfection. And he goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 6, that God gives more grace to us as we humble ourselves before him and acknowledge our failures. He's not expecting perfection. God helps us in our failings. And so those of us who have tender consciences shouldn't kind of discount ourselves, rule ourselves out and say, oh no, we're not Christians, we're not saved, just because we can see much more easily the evidence of our failures than we can the evidence of, of faith in God's work in us. We mustn't, mustn't zero in on the one and just forget about the other. Even small evidence of faith in God's work in us should be comforting and assuring. But equally, if you've got a rhino-hide kind of conscience that's really hard to prick, don't be too quick to dismiss the question. You might think, oh, I bought a big issue the other week, so I'm fine. Well, why did you buy it? Did you buy it just to look good in front of other people? Did you just buy it because you were interested in the story on the cover, never mind the, the need of the person selling it? We've got to ask those questions. James expects us to ask those questions. Is there any evidence of true faith in my actions? To the extent that there is, 
And I'm pretty sure that's probably the case for most people in this room. I, mean, I don't know all of you. <laughs> but to the extent that there is evidence of fruit, we should give thanks to God. Give thanks for his Spirit's work in us. Give thanks for the way he's changing us. Give thanks for the, what James calls the implanted word in, back in chapter 1, verse 21, that is changing us. And to the extent that that fruit is lacking, we should humble ourselves. As James says, we should, we should ask God's forgiveness and we should accept again the implanted word. We should dwell on it. Like I said last week, for example, dwell on Christ's mercy to us, becoming poor for us, so that that might shape and inform the way we then treat people who are poor. And pray on it. Pray that that word would transform us. And if, if as you look at your life, there really is no evidence of, of controlled words or loving deeds or whatever that, that really does spring from a love for Jesus and a desire to obey him for his sake, rather than I don't know, to look good in other people's eyes or to, to get something back for him or all the other kind of dubious motives that fill all of our hearts, at least some of the time, if there's really no evidence, I'd urge you to, to, to plead with God for mercy, plead with him to change your heart so that you do begin to really take to heart the gospel, that you start to be changed by it. Because Jesus says in, in Matthew, 27, sorry, Matthew 7, verse 23, that for those who have called him Lord, Lord, but have never demonstrated any fruit of that in their lives, he's going to say at the final judgment, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's not enough to call him Lord. Unless we live like he is, our Lord, with the right to direct our lives. That's, yeah, we, we could stop there, basically. In one sense, that's James's point made. He goes on in verse 20, just in case we are unsure. Um... I'm afraid he doesn't have anything complimentary to say about us if we are unsure. But he goes on anyway. He gives two famous examples from Scripture, very familiar examples, very dear to his Jewish Christian readers. Abraham and Rahab, two total opposites. One revered father of the Jewish people. The other a pagan Gentile prostitute. And he, he demonstrates his point from both of their lives as if to say that it makes no difference who you are. Whoever you are, wherever you are from, male or female, the only faith that matters and that God accepts as genuine is faith which shows itself in deeds. Now, I am afraid I've not done a very good job of planning this morning and I'm not going to have time to speak about... Um, Rahab and Abraham in equal measure. Um, I'm mainly going to focus on Abraham um, because that's what James does. 
if you've got no idea who Rahab was or what she did, I'd encourage you to go home later and read Joshua, uh, Joshua chapter 2. Um, she's really instructive for us in that she's, she's in, in this city of Jericho that the Israelites are about to sort of lay siege to as they take the promised land for themselves. Everyone is quaking with fear. These two Israelite spies have come into the city to check it out before they attack. And she gives shelter to them. She hides them from the, the city soldiers, and then she sends them out on their way at night because of her faith. Now, everyone in that city is quaking with fear because they've heard about what God has done in defeating the Egyptians, defeating the um, other kings on the other side of the Jordan, leading Israel through the desert for 40 years. They know that Yahweh is a fearsome God. But like the demons, everyone else is just shuddering. And they're still going to fight against God's people. But Rahab stops fighting and says, I'm, I'm going to entrust myself to this God. I'm going to entrust my life into the hands of him and his people to save me. And she shows her trust and she shows her faith by sacrificially helping the spies and hiding them. So she... She demonstrates what James is talking about. Go and read about her later in Joshua 2. That's about as much as I'm going to say on her for now. Abraham, um, who Gabe says a lot more about, is, is also very instructive for us and very interesting. Because on the one hand, he is counted righteous by God simply for believing a promise. Before he'd really done anything, God counted him righteous for believing the promise that Abraham's offspring would be as countless as the stars in the sky. Now, Abraham and his wife Sarah were already too old to have children, but Abraham still believed that promise, and that was enough for God to count him as righteous. And yet, James says, he was also counted righteous, if we look at verse 21, when 30 years later... He obeyed God and presented his miracle child, Isaac, who'd finally arrived, as a sacrifice on an altar. A sacrifice which God thankfully averted. But nevertheless, Abraham did something there which God considered as righteousness. And you might be left wondering, well, which, which is it? Was Abraham righteous because of his faith or because of his sacrifice of Isaac, his deeds. And James says it's both. Verse 22, his faith and his actions were working together. Abraham's trust in God's promise gave courage to act. His faith informed his actions and gave him confidence even to sacrifice his only son, trusting that God would provide. Either that, that God would somehow provide a substitute at the last minute, which is what he actually did, or perhaps even that God would bring Isaac back from the dead. Abraham had a solid faith in God's promise. And so he was willing to act in the most costly way. And his faith showed itself in what he did. 
Now, we might even say that the moment of acting was when Abraham's faith became most real. Because it was as, as he raised the knife, he had no option but to trust God's promise. It was either that or take Isaac off the altar and go home. His faith was made complete or perfected, as James says in verse 22, because Abraham kept his trust all the way, right till that final moment when God intervened and provided a lamb in the, a ram in the bushes behind Abraham. It's, it's a bit like if, um, if one of you asks to borrow my car for the weekend, and in the moment I say, oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I trust you. But when I walk home later, I'm feeling a bit unsure. And when you come around and knock on my door on next Friday evening, wanting the keys, I, uh, I hide in the back room and pretend there's no one in because I'm, I'm wavering and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not sure I do trust them. Like, are they going to bring it back in one piece? I said I trusted you. But my trust hasn't actually um, amounted to anything until the moment that I sort of cross that pain threshold, if you like, of saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but I at least trust you are going to do your best to bring the car back in one piece, and so I will give you the key. It's, it's the moment of acting that the trust has become most real. It's reached its goal, if you like. And it's the same with Abraham. In verse, in verse 23, um, God's verdict on him 30 years before, that he, he could be counted righteous because of his faith, that was proved accurate 30 years later. It was proved that Abraham really did have such faith, saving faith, despite a lot of stumbling along the way in those 30 years in between. But by what he did, his faith was proved genuine, and so God's words in Genesis 15 were proved accurate, and his verdict was, if you like, it was fulfilled. God actually says in Genesis 22, verse 12, after Abraham has almost made the sacrifice, now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now I know there is a sense in which it was through Abraham's actions that God knew the quality of his faith. Now, of course, God is sovereign and he's outside of time. God always knew that. He did, in one sense, he didn't need Abraham to prove that to him. But never in the whole of Scripture does God's sovereignty or his knowledge undermine our responsibility to act and to respond to his word? Um, and if you're sort of very theological, you don't need to be an Arminian to believe that. Calvinists believe that too. Um, God's sovereignty never undermines human responsibility for how we act and how we respond to his word. So God requires faith to bear fruit. He requires faith to be proved genuine. And those actions are taken into account at the final judgment. Jesus says as much in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, where it's, 
Whether you've done so much as given a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who belongs to him. Paul says the same in Romans 2, verses 5 to 11. It is, it is through deeds and those who have sought to do what is good and honorable. It is to them that God gives eternal life. So James isn't contradicting anyone here. But to finish, I want to try and bring a bit of clarity on how all this works for anyone who's confused. Um, as Paul says, and others, God forgives our sins. He declares us righteous. He accepts us into his family as his beloved children when we turn to Jesus. In that moment, when we trust in his perfect life and death and resurrection on our behalf, simply by trusting in what Jesus has done for us, God accepts us as righteous. And from that moment, if our trust is genuine, we could not be more loved by God. We could not be more accepted by him. Our standing with him doesn't sort of rise or fall. It's not like a roller coaster where his love for us varies depending on how faithfully we're following him or how much we're falling into sin. We cannot add anything to Jesus' finished work on our behalf. And if we try to add anything, we don't actually gain any good by it. We, we lose the whole thing. If we're not going to trust in Jesus, then we'll, we, we'll be judged purely on our own deeds and that's not going to end well. But at the final judgment, Jesus, who is our judge, will require proof that our faith was genuine. That is where deeds come in. True faith in such a loving saviour will show itself in a response of love and obedience. It's that simple. And because God never takes away our, or ignores our responsibility to respond to him, those deeds of willing, loving obedience will be taken into account as a necessary proof that our faith has been genuine. So true faith shows itself in deeds of loving obedience to Jesus. And the good news in James and the rest of the New Testament, actually, is that God has given us the power to obey. Like we said already, back in 1 verse 21, James talks about the implanted word. That word, in verse 18, made our hearts new. It's changed us. We are no longer the same if we have truly trusted Jesus. We are no longer slaves to sin. That word has changed us. And the work of God's word in our heart, combined with the work of his Holy Spirit, enables us to obey. We have the power to be different. So we should actually be confidence if we have trusted Jesus we can bear 
the kind of fruit in our lives that evidences a real faith. And we will. So, in summary, how to respond? We should give thanks to the God who provides all we need. We should give thanks to the God who hasn't left us struggling on our own to try and produce a modicum of, of fruit, of evidence of goodness in our lives. We should give thanks to God who's given us everything we need, who is working in us and with us to produce that fruit. And as James says, we should humbly accept the implanted word again. Each time we're confronted with our failures, accept the word again. Humble yourself before the God who gives more grace. And don't just listen to the word. Keep trying to do what it says. I'm going to finish there. Um, Let's have a moment of quiet. And then let's pray. Heavenly Father, please would you help us to respond humbly to your word and rightly. Help us not to be too quick to brush aside James's challenge and the questions that he raises. Help us not to be too quick to try and almost... <laughs> cancel out the, 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 the difficult, challenging nature of what he says by almost pitting Paul's theology or other bits of scripture against him. Help us to try and hold these things together. Help us to be confident in Jesus' finished work and yet help us to accept responsibility for the way that it your word and your spirit must bear fruit in our lives if we've, if, we've, if we've received them and if we've believed. We pray that as a church family, we would become more and more marked by not least the kind of fruit that James is, is focusing on, by, by love and compassion for the poor by care in our words and the things we say, and keeping ourselves from being polluted by, by the world. We pray, please, would you do your work in us, and please, would you help us um, not to be complacent about our part in that work. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,